Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, uh, joined again today by Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in San Diego. And uh, folks, if you're tuning in, you've picked uh, probably one of the best shows you could tune in for. Uh, we are really, really honored today. We have uh, Tony Saunders is in the studio with us, and in a minute we're going to be having a chance to talk to him. And if he tells half the stories that he was just sharing with Rob and I before we logged on, uh, this is going to be a show you won't want to miss, and you're going to want to pass out to your friends because uh, we all love Jerry, we all love Merle, and nobody knows him better than Tony. So we're very excited to dive into that. We've got some of Tony's music, and we're going to lead into one right now for everybody before we get going here. And this is a bass solo uh, that Tony did uh, on the Keystone Revisited album. <laughs> That is, uh, that's great bass. What can I say? Uh, this is just wonderful. Rob, how you doing? And uh, what a way to start a show, huh? Yeah, look, I'm so fired up. I'm such a big fan of Tony Saunders' music and such a, a big fan of um, all the things that he's accomplished musically over the last, I mean, 47 years or so that I've kind of known him since uh, he started playing with uh, the Garcia Band back in 1974 or 75. Uh, when he first came on my radar and obviously I was a big fan of his father's music as well. And I, I can't even tell you how thrilled I am to have him in the studio with us today. So, uh, without any further, um, ado, let's, let's dive in. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today, man. I'm so psyched to meet you. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I think that, uh, you know, um, I've been playing bass now 53 years and, uh, it all started by, you know, my dad would take me to sessions and, and at first I played piano and my dad would take me to sessions um, when, when he was on. So when I got, I was in high school, I went to a session, they were doing the soundtrack for uh, uh, Jane Fonda and uh, Donald Southern clue for the movie clue with Taj Mahal, <laughs> Taj Mahal, yes. Jane Fonda. You know what I'm saying? I met Jane Fonda. I'm like going, damn, she's even finer than, than, uh, you know, I'm just a kid, but I'm going, I know that that's a beautiful woman. So I'm not one of those kids who who didn't want to be like their parents when they grew up. I'm the kid who wanted to be exactly like my dad when I grew up. Because <laughs> what a lifestyle. I mean, you know, a lot of firsts happened at his shows. You know, girls, I first noticed girls liking me, you know, at his at their shows. And, you know, I saw the, the rock world and, and I idolized John Kahn. And what's really cool is we lived on Page. My grandparents lived on Page and Ashbury. So in 1960, in, in San Francisco, in the Haight Ashbury, they lived right. They lived right down the street from the Grateful Dead house. That's and amazing. Little, little did I know that in 1965, I was 10 years old. I, I turned 10 in 1965. But that's where the hippies came, um, and they, there was music in the park. Girls would see through shirts, you know. So I threw away <laughs> my Playboy magazines. I didn't need that. I, my grandmother would go, you guys sure have finished your, 
your chores quick. I said, I know. Man, I got to get up on Hate Street. You won't believe what's going on up there. So, so t- when you were 10 years old, Tony, that means you know Janis Joplin was running around, Quicksilver Messenger Service was running around, The Grateful Dead, obviously, um, Moby Grape. Like, all these bands were right in your backyard as you were a 10-year-old kid learning how to play music. They, they were playing in the panhandle every week. Every Saturday and Sunday, there's music in the park. And after I did my church stuff and practiced my piano lessons, I got to go to the park and, and, and play with, and not play with them. I got to meet them. Uh, Jack Cassidy, I met him first. And Jack Cassidy, he let me rehearse my group at the airplane house when I was a teenager. Um, whenever the, the equipment was all out of the airplane house, he said that, that I could practice in there. And he gave me a couple of bass cabinets you know, and got me started. What's really funny is I played with so many of those people that I stood there on the sideline, you know, Googling, going like, wow, wow, this is really cool. Music is really great. So I, I probably saw so much music. It was incredible. And then, so my we had to go to sleep like at nine o'clock. And my grandmother in 1965 would call the police and go, hey, my grandkids can't get to sleep. And then three years later, when my dad met Jerry, then she's feeding him chicken. You know what I mean? The same guys that you call the police on. You know, so it was it was uh it was quite a transition because if if in nineteen sixty-five it was still pretty segregated, even in San Francisco. Um and so the hippies came to we lived my grandfather worked for uh Mr. Lurie, who at the time opened owned the San Francisco Giants. We weren't supposed to live where we lived. There weren't any black families there. But Mr. Lurie went to the bank with my grandfather, said he needs a loan. And, of course, he got the loan. And we were one of about three black families that lived in the Haight-Ashbury. The rest were Jew. It was a very upscale Jewish, uh, Irish, Catholic neighborhood. And, uh, you know, it was it was quiet. It was peaceful. You go to the store, sign for your groceries, and then your grandparents pay on the week, the next weekend. You know, I knew all the – everybody – you know, and so when the hippies came there, it was quite a quite a change. You know, because didn't didn't it also go the other way? I remember when Bill Graham got the first Fillmore. That was in a really black neighborhood, and a lot of people were saying that Bill wasn't able to get the yeah, Fillmore. I'll tell you what happened. So the Fillmore happened because that's where the blacks lived. The blacks lived where they worked in the shipyard. They all lived in the Fillmore district. That's where all the black people lived. So it was called too because you couldn't live west of Masonic which went from the where the panhandle was all the way to the beach and you couldn't you couldn't play music south of Van Ness so at being black so all the blacks went to the same hotel um that's why i met so many people they they all stayed at Sam Wong's hotel uh, in the in the Broadway district and and then my dad played at Jackson Sutter and they which was right on Sutter and uh Sutter and Fillmore um which was right around the corner from where Winterland was so all the blacks played at the same clubs, you know what I mean? And it, that was the first place that um, where my dad played. I can't remember the name of the club, but um, where my dad played was the first place that blacks and whites could go to the same club and play. This is when he was playing jazz in the United States. Like we played at the like you could work at the Cotton Club in New York, but you couldn't go there and just hang out. So on Monday nights, they had this. They had the music there, and blacks and whites could sit at the same table, you know, and and go there. And it was the first place. A lot of a lot of people that I that I have told me these stories 
It's a, uh, it's incredible. So you'd have to play it. If, if you're playing north of, um, of, of Van Ness, that means it was basically all the places in the Tenderloin, like Great American Music Hall and all the little theater district stuff, huh? But this was pre that, pre that. So the union had it. The blacks couldn't play south of Van Ness, which is where all the hotels were. So all the hotel gigs. Right. Right. You yeah. know what I'm saying? All the good gigs. So, yeah. but they developed the Fillmore into such a mecca that everybody wanted to come there. That's why Bill Graham came there. And, and and turned Winterland. I was sad when he did it because I used to see the ice follies there every year. But I was happy. Little did I know when when that was ending, you know, that would be part of my career going to Winterland. I mean, I was there for the last days of the, when the Grateful Dead stopped playing in the 70s. Um, and then when the, the, the band did the last waltz, I saw Stevie Wonder open for the Rolling Stones. And, and like I knew, I knew all the people. They just told me, I knew the, all the security guys. So, because I went there with my dad and Jerry. And so, um, you know, um, so I could get into all these places. And they just said, Tony, don't drink or get us in trouble. I said, oh, I'm cool. I, I'm cool. Let me I ask you. Yes. This is all great. But what was it like growing up, you know, with your father and with all of these amazing musicians, Jerry Garcia and the guys in the airplane, all of them. And, you know, I mean, and, and you're a young kid running around the house and they're all there. What, what, tell us about that. Well, I, did, I didn't know that they were famous. I had no idea. I had no idea. I mean, my dad's first band, he had Johnny Mathis singing, you know? Um, wow. And so um, I remember one time when Dion Warwick came to our house and and I charged my friends a dollar to come look at her, and and, uh, and, and, I, and you're the lady that sings. Do you know the way to San Jose? And she said yes. Her husband Bill Eden was playing drums with my dad, you know, and uh, oh, and you know at this jazz club. So yes, I knew that it was special because we got to do so many special things. I mean, my dad. Okay, so when the Philadelphia Warriors moved from Philly to San Francisco, um, yep. So my dad met Will Chamberlain. So he had a record company with Will Chamberlain. So I hung out with Will Chamberlain. I cleaned his house for five dollars a week. Oh. You know what I mean? And and he would like the shortest girls. He would be and he would leave his car at our house when he went on the road trips. He had a Bentley. You know what I mean? So he left that at our house. But I, I would clean up his house every Saturday for five dollars. And and so so I so I didn't you know I knew Will was famous because we we would go to the Warriors games and uh, you know we go to the Civic Auditorium and watch the Warriors play and and I would play pickup games with my dad me and my dad beat Will and my brother you know I don't know if Will let us or whatever <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. so, so but it was it was great I mean he was a super nice guy and he later in life uh, when I lived in Los Angeles. He did me a solid. So when my parents split up, moved to L.A., um, so all the friends, I told them, yeah, I know Will Chamberlain, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were like, okay, you take us to a Laker game and let's, uh, you know, let's, you know. So they had this kid's day. I was in junior high school. Um, and so they had this kid's day. They said, Tony, hook us up. So I said, yeah, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, you know, I never called Wilton and asked him, you know, but we had so much fun there. They didn't trip when we were walking away from the place. They didn't. Nobody said, you know, Tony, you didn't introduce us to Will. So unbeknownst to me, <laughs> we're walking across the parking lot. I hear this, Tony, because Will stuttered. I hear, Tony, Tony and Molly. He, he yelled for me <laughs> and my brother, right? And he said, Tony. And so he pulled his Bentley up 
He said, how you guys doing? You want to ride home? And we said, we said, uh, we're with our friends, um, so we, we're just going to take the bus. He said, T -t tell your mom to make me a pie. Come by Wednesday and get it. You know what I mean? So when he came by Wednesday <laughs> and got the pie, you know, he asked me, he said, do you want to be a ball boy sometime? I was like, yes. So, you know, I had to see some yes. Laker games to meet Jerry West, Elson Baylor. You know, I saw those guys. I saw Jerry West make that 63-footer when they beat when they lost to the Knicks because Dave DeBusher hit a shot from the corner and they lost to the Knicks. But, uh, you know, but to hang out with yeah. Wilt was, like, incredible. You know what I'm saying? It's like Wilt Chamberlain. And, and, and for him to come across the parking lot and notice me by my big, fat head, you know, and I had, so I had kudos <laughs> at school. I went to junior high school with Warren Moon, that, the quarterback, and uh, and who else went to my junior? Oh, Marcus Johnson, who played on the Milwaukee Bucks. Sure. So, so I'm seeing some talented guys. But get back to your question. I was always around some talented music. You know what I mean? Some really great music, no matter where I went. Because um, uh, we went to my first. My dad played with uh, with the Billy Williams Review, and they had those guys who did the with Shirley Temple show. They did those. He had those those two twins were in that group. And, uh, you know, I met so many musicians uh, that, that it was incredible. I, went, I would go on Saturdays. The lady who lived in front of me, she let the Crusaders rehearse at their house. So I would see that. So let's go back to San Francisco. So I would, I, I would come visit my dad, and I would get to see so much music. You know, I didn't realize I'm hanging out at Mike Bloomfield's house. And, like, I found his pill stash in the in, in this this tent that we would play in. So I carry these pills in to my dad. I go, hey, dad, I found these in the tent. He's going, what are you doing? You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> so I mean, hanging around Bloomfield, Butterfield, and Nick Gravenitis introduced my dad to that whole scene because I later did a, I did a session a few years ago with Gravenitis, and Gravenitis said he came from Chicago with Butterfield to San Francisco to fit in. But they're the ones who introduced my dad into that whole scene. And Gravenitis said, Everybody loved the way my dad played uh, organ, so they they kept him. And then at, at that time, they was playing. God, um, Jerry was playing with at the Matrix with Howard Wells. Yeah, and it was Howard Wells, John Con, yeah, John Con, Bill Vitt, and my dad. And and then so we would go to the Matrix because they had, with my dad because they had pillows for us to lie on. You know, <laughs> we're just kids, and my dad my dad liked to keep us around, and so. Uh, what was really cool is that so when when my dad met Jerry, then then the business uh, Bill Vitt told me this the business got more serious and at first and so my dad never played in the Jerry Garcia band um, that was after first, it was called Merle Saunders right. and Jerry Garcia right um, yeah. Yeah, yeah for those seventy to seventy three and I mean for us we're these little black kids you know listen to Motown. And then all of a sudden, we had this other music to listen to. I always thought it was cool because I loved the way John Kahn played bass. And I imitated him, and I could play every every bass line. But, so, but at that point, you were still a keyboard player, weren't you? Like, you were still... Uh, yeah, 70 to 73, I was a keyboard player. Yes. And you were getting you were getting taught by Herbie Hancock and Sly Stone, huh? Well, I, I had a show on Sly Stone's... So, Sylvester Stewart, Sly, he came to my house, to my dad, to get advice. You know what I mean? Because his career, he was a disc jockey, and all of a sudden, Sly and the Family Stone started getting famous. So he would come to my dad. My dad was like the older guru. It's kind of like I am right now. 
I'm the I'm the free lawyer for everybody. You know, I say, well, Tony, should we do this or should we do that? You know, so so my dad would would advise Sylvester, and he saw me he saw me playing piano. He took an interest in me, and because I did a I had an hour show on his show, and uh, and he bought me a B a B three for my birthday, wow. my tenth birthday, oh and my then George God. Benson, my George Benson came talked to my dad uh, before he did that record weekend in L.A. He said, Merle, should I sing? And, and my dad going, yeah, you sing like an angel. He says, but what are the jazz guys going to think about my playing? About I'm a jazz guy. And and so he said, my, my dad said, it's okay. You sing really great and you play really great. Don't worry about it. And, and the next, within a couple of months, he did that record weekend in L.A., which launched his career from playing, making a five or 6000 a night to playing arenas. And uh, and so, so that kind of stuff was happening to me all the time. So I, my dad was best friends with Jimmy Smith. Uh, he, Which is insane because, like, Jimmy Smith is one of my all-time favorite piano players. Uh, that, like, I don't think there's anyone that plays an electric piano better than Jimmy Smith. The Jimmy Smith Trio, like, for me when I was young, was oh, yeah. the thing that completely and totally changed my life as far as jazz. Where I'm like, all right, th- this is a whole nother level. I-, I moved his organ every time he came to San Francisco. I al- he's also a karate expert, and I'm standing on the corner of 57th and 7th Avenue in New York one day, and he comes, and I feel somebody kick me in my head. And it was Jimmy Smith. He said, I told you to always be on guard. Be ready. <laughs> you know what I mean? But so I got to meet, I met George Duke when I was really young. Um, the guy who owned the place where he would play at let me go in and sit behind everybody and said, Tony, don't make a peek, but you can watch this. So I saw George Duke play, Al Jarreau. My dad played, he played Jackson Sutter six nights a week. Then he had a Sunday jam session that everybody who was in town would come to. Miles, I have I have pictures with him playing with Miles, Lionel Hampton. You know, it, it was like a who's who of music people. Chuck Rainey as well, huh? Chuck Rainey was my dad's best friend, yeah, from when he moved to New York. And so Chuck Rainey was at my house, and he showed me how to play the Sanford and Son lick that he played on Sanford and Son. And the first time I, I saw Chuck Rainey play, um, he was playing with uh, 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 Quincy Jones. And it was him playing electric, Ray Brown playing upright. You know, I'm going like, you know, it's like, and I knew who these guys were. But let me go back to when I was still playing keyboards. When my dad would go on the road with Jerry, I took out his truck and his B3 um, to play little high school gigs. And if he if he knows now, he'd probably come down from heaven and pop me upside my head. <laughs> and my grandmother, would, my grandmother would say, does your dad know you're using the van? I'm going like, yeah. But then it's between us. Let's keep it low. Keep it on the low. He doesn't want me using it that much. In fact, there are people from my high school that come to my gigs now and they go, Tony, when did you switch to bass? And I go like, like when I was, when I was in the ninth grade, 10th grade. <laughs> and, and they'll go like, we didn't know. So, so when I started picking up John, my dad would take me to John Conn's house. I'd sit there and learn stuff. And, uh, you know, and then I would listen to him play the gigs with him, him and my dad and Jerry. And I, I could play every, because I had the piano in me. I knew what the notes were. Right. So, Every after I start getting good, this is maybe six months into the thing. John Kahn would say, "Well, why don't you come up and play the last song with Merle and Jerry?" So I would come up and play the last song. So this one time, we were on the way to a gig, and my dad goes, "Hey, bring your bass." And I'm going, "Why well, gotta bring my bass? I could just play. I could just play John Kahn's bass." And so Tom Fogarty from Credence. So so okay, back up a little bit too for that. Oh, the Gollywogs rehearsed at Fantasy Records. When my dad was signed to Fantasy Records, 
they they worked the gollywogs worked in the the uh the mail room um the gollywogs turned into Creedence Clearwater Revival and I knew them from that you know what I mean so when Tom so I was getting good at bass he gave me a Fender pre CBS bass and so you know I went and got that and played my first gig with Dad and Jerry Steve Steve Pack Big Steve he told me about two months ago that they were all nervous because they didn't know that I could play. They didn't even, because before Steve gave us $100 to move the organ on so he didn't have to come to San Francisco and pick up my dad's organ, right? <laughs> and so I was just a roadie. So when they, my dad said, Tony's going to play, they all was like, huh? And they was all looking, it was like they were looking around a corner and then, and then they said, okay, here we go. Jerry didn't know I could play. No, uh, Bill Vitt didn't know I could play. John Kahn was away playing with, uh, I forget the name of the group, Brewer and Shipley. Him and Bill Vitt were gone playing with Brewer and Shipley because they had just done a record with them. So they were gone for two weeks. So, so, so my dad on the way to the, on the way I was driving to play at the end of the beginning, which is about 45 minutes from San Francisco in Katati, California, you know, halfway there, he goes, Tony, guess what? John's not there today. You're playing the whole gig. I'm going, what? <laughs> I'm going like, what? He goes, just stand by my left hand, and then I'll, if you don't know the chords, I'll tell you the chords. So it's like, okay. And so I stood by him. And that's 1974, like June of 74, somewhere around there? 74, yes. I, I was 18 years old. And uh, so I got through that gig, but after the first break, uh, Jerry and, and my dad were like going high-fiving. It's going, Merle, Tony can play really good. We don't have to get subs anymore when John goes. We could just use Tony. And Parrish gave me like an amp, you know, gave, gave me my equipment. You know, and he, he was really proud that, that that I was good. And he said, but you're not a roadie no more. Now you're a musician. So he cut me off from getting my $100. You know what I'm saying? It, and I only could get paid from gigs. But, you know, I wasn't mad at it because I just kept getting better and better. And that's all I wanted to do. So, so being playing my first gig, yes, I was nervous. You know, um, it was, uh, it was, but I remembered every baseline. I didn't add any feels. I know I played everything just like John Kahn, you know, because I hadn't, I hadn't got my own identity yet. And so, you know, it was, it was great. And, uh, you know, girls liked me. I was like, girls didn't like us because before I was always with my dad, never really had, you know, a, a weekend in high school when girls would go to the parties, you know, they would meet somebody else. They talked to me during the week, but on the weekend I had to go with my dad to gigs and he was breaking me in, learning how to play bass. So I had no social life on the weekends, but, but then they found out I could play music and I was, I, it was cool. You know, that's why I have a son. <laughs> my son was born. Uh, my, my, my son's mother hung out around uh, my dad and Jerry before I did. You know, she was. She went to all the gigs. She went to all the Grateful Dead gigs. She introduced me to the Grateful Dead. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't know anything, but through her, uh, she was a great girl. Her name is Leslie. We're still friends. You know what I mean? We're still best. We're still friends. We have sons. I have. We have a son together. Um, her daughter claims me as a father because on Facebook I'm more entertaining than her real dad. Her dad is only a lawyer who represented me for hey, 30 years. Hey, hey, lawyers. Well, you know what I'm saying? And so, yeah. and so uh, she's blonde hair and blue eyes, right? But she, but she she claims me as a dad, right? And so people, will, she'll go to places and people are better. Tony Saunders ain't your dad. He's too black to be your dad. 
<laughs> and she goes, call him and ask him. Hey, Tony, let me ask you this. Tell me what it'd be like, you know, at night at your father's house, you guys were hanging out and Jerry comes over. You know, <laughs> what happens that night? Are they hanging out? Are they getting stoned? Are they playing music? Are they telling you stories? What's happening? Uh, we'd probably go downstairs. We'd probably smoke a fatty and then go downstairs and uh, and, and play music. Because my Jerry was always learning from my dad to jazz stuff. And he went, because he, he gave me a book for Christmas one time. Thesarius' Book of Scales, which has every scale that you could play mathematically. You, you, some of the scales you can't play because you don't have enough fingers. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, so it, w- it would definitely be really cool uh, because and they, they had their own world. My dad and Jerry loved each other a lot. And my dad, you know, my dad, you know, he was hurt when the group split up. But he was, uh, you know, he always still called on Jerry. And Jerry still called on him, you know what I mean, to do separate projects. So they kept working until until Jerry passed. Yeah, I mean, they did, they did stuff I mean, for years after the original Garcia-Merle combination, but they did Legion of Mary together. They did Reconstruction together. They did uh, Rainforest Benefit stuff. They did the re- Reconstruction first, then Legion of Mary, um, and uh, then uh, um, the, re- then the uh, Rainforest CD, which was phenomenal. Yeah, in 88. Uh, and then I was there after Jerry had the... Uh, the brain thing, um, when he when he had the coma thing, and then I saw him basically learn the guitar. Because what I'll tell you too is after that, the the Grateful Dead didn't play really long songs anymore because Jerry couldn't remember. And it was he was good for about eight nine minutes, but that was the most. You know what I mean? So they didn't put themselves in, in a situation. You notice Touch of Grey happened when when they started playing again, and uh, you know, and then they started doing more concise music. You know, the songs all had endings. Instead of them playing them 40-minute jams, they would only be 10 minutes, you know, at the most. But they they really only were like five, six minutes. Um, and Jerry, they, he would always be in the – he was into learning music. So what really made me learn about Jerry's love for my dad was – so my dad created a group called Aunt Monk, and we would play every Monday night at the Sand Dunes, this club in San Francisco, out by the beach. And Jerry would show up, no Steve Parrish, no, just by himself, because he knew we were playing, carrying his amp in and his guitar. You know what I mean? And he would, he said, I just, hey, Merle, I just, hey, Merle, I just want to come play, learn some different <laughs> tunes. As everything they played in Reconstruction and Legion of Mary, Jerry already knew, because he played with my dad with Aunt Monk. We would play Stanley Clark stuff, Weather Report stuff. You know, we would play all this fusion stuff, and Jerry loved it. You know what I mean? He loved it because he would go. One time we played Stanley Clark song "Lopsy Lou," which goes like hella chords and it's hella fusioning. Jerry would go, oh, "That don't work. That don't work. That don't work." He said, "Hey, you know what? I got to come over, Merle, and we got to figure that one out." So he did. Came over to our house after the gig. They figured it out. The next week when he played it, he was perfect. You know, and uh, and it led to me one time when I had to stand over by Jerry instead of my normal safety zone. Uh, by my dad's left hand, you know, they played this song, Pennies from Heaven. I did not know it at all. And it's on YouTube somewhere and with me screwing up the whole song. And I was so embarrassed after that. I said, Jerry, I'm sorry. I, just, I didn't know that song. And he said, don't worry about it. It's just a fucking song. Play the next one. I know you know <laughs> the next one. And I did. And I killed the next one. And, you know, so it was a, it was a combination. Those groups evolved because when I started getting better, I'm not saying this, 
But John wanted to do different things, you know, because I started getting better. And then instead of one song, people would go, hey, is Tony here tonight, John? And I'm like, I know that rubbed him the wrong way. You know, I know it. I, I know it. When that fusion stuff was big, I mean, that was a big influence on you as well. Like Alfonso Johnson from Weather Report was a big influence on your play, huh? Yeah, Alfonso Johnson was ridiculous. Cucumber Slumber, you know, that was that was the best. You know, I later I, I later got to meet the guys who I loved playing, listen to when I was young. I loved listening to Jack. I, I got to play. There's on YouTube, there's a thing with me and Jack Cassidy playing Imagine, just the two bases. And, and I introduced him. I said, this is my teacher. This is the teacher and the student. And, and you know, it was Jack the one time. So um, when Bob Steeler played in Hot Tuna, I was Bob Steeler's best friend. We would go downstairs in his house and we would play for hours, right? So when uh, Norman would get mad at Jack, he would call up Bob and say, hey, is Tony around? Can we play some? Can you guys come over here and play? So I'll get to go play with Hot Tuna. Yorma used to come to my gigs too and hang out. Wow. And then so so uh so Jack, I would be I was like Marta's little kid when I was uh, Yorma's first wife. I would be at the all their sessions. Hey, and if you listen to I think it's funky number nine or something like that on Hot Tuna Record, listen to that bass part. He stole it from me. Jack stole it from me. One of my favorite imagines of all time was actually your dad and Jerry at Pacific High Studios, I think in 1973 when they played the instrumental version together. Were you uh, were you there for that? Yeah, yeah. It was a yep, I was I went to every gig with my yeah. dad. It was like it was it was uh you know free get to hang out, smoke weed, listen to music, you know. That's a good thing when you're a kid. Yeah, I think that was like a, a, a K-Fog thing, right? I think they played it for K-Fog thing. Yep, and it was yeah. always like a really nice place and different people. You know, I'd meet all these really be- – I would wonder why these beautiful women didn't look at me. It's because I was 14 years old, 15, 16 years old. But I would see these gorgeous women, and, you know, they would be like – They'd be like, "Why are you looking at me, little kid?" You know. So, Dan, why don't we fire up uh, a little bit of um, of Tony playing with Garcia? I think the next one we've got lined up is a cover of Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On" from the Keystone Theater in Berkeley, California, on January twenty second, nineteen seventy five. Yep. Thank God, John was gone. That was cool. It's funny. There's a the what's going on. I think all blues is on there um, that that I know that I'm on. And then I'll tell you some as we. I like how you t- you interrupt and ask me questions because it just triggers more stories, you know. And Jerry, so Jerry also. So for a while, I lived in Inverness with this girl, beautiful woman, and uh, she walked up to me at the gig and said, "I want to take you home." And she was, I'd never seen a woman that beautiful. Like I was, I was just a baby, but she was 35. And I learned how I wanted to be later in life living with her. But Jerry lived on a couple of ridges over. So I was walking by his car one day and, and I saw his camels. So I took a couple of his camels and smoked them. And when we got to the gig, he looked at me and he said, 
Tony, why'd you take my cigarettes? I, I, I reached in my pocket and I had a pack. I said, I'm sorry, man. I was up on the ridge and I saw your car and I took a couple cigarettes. Don't worry. I'm replacing them right now. Here's a couple packs. He said, well, thank you. You're so nice for replacing them. You know, so it was, it was, a, it was good. You know, it, you just don't realize that, you know, Uncle Jerry was, was really famous and that, you know, those people came out to see him every night, um, you know, and, and they just, the, the people like they believe he's like, he's such an icon. They still come to see people play his music. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's like, uh, you know, it was, it, what, what a guy. What I will say is that what I learned from him is that keep learning music because that's all he did. I think he, if he was alive today, he'd be a little bummed at all the copy groups that copy him because what if he was having a bad night and you think that show was great and you're playing everything from that show that he did, but he was always a learner. He was always thinking about what can I learn to make myself better? And I really appreciated that about him. So, so one of the things I'm going to say on this is like the reason I love Garcia and I think Larry will say the same thing is that we learned about so many other musicians that I would have never otherwise known about if it wasn't for Garcia. Like the stuff that you guys were playing and the stuff that, you know, your dad and, uh, and Jerry were playing, those are all, you know, for the most part covers of other people that, you know, that I would have never heard of. Like, for instance, like the next song we're going to play uh, that you're on is, is Expressway. I would have never heard of Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. And I would have never heard of the Soul Survivors if it wasn't for, uh, you know, for Garcia. So the stuff that he turned me on to, not just in like um, in gospel music and not just in, um, you know, like uh, like funk that he was doing, um, you know, but even The Grateful Dead was largely a cover band. Like, sure, I would have discovered Dylan, but I wouldn't have discovered, you know, like Howlin' Wolf at such a young age if it wasn't for Garcia, you know? Right, right. Although every New Year's they have somebody great playing with them, like Wynton Marsalis, Wynton Marsalis, the Neville Brothers. You know what I'm saying? They, they I mean, it, those, those shows are like epic. And what's really funny now is like Bobby's an expert on everything, but he knows his facts. He know, but the, but the thing I'm gonna tell you about him, he knows his facts. He'll go, well, Tony, back in 1957, this guy did this, and he knows his facts because I played on uh, I forget not Willie Dixon. I played on Willie Dixon's record that his daughter did, and he's going, well, you know Willie Dixon. Bobby told me all the facts about him. You know what I mean, and 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 little red rooster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what a what a what a thing to play. You know what a what a history to have. You know what I mean. If you listen to Weir's guitar parts in the Grateful Dead from back in the day, they're intricate because he was he was like accenting what he felt from Jerry and and Phil, and and, it's, and sometimes it's not the easiest stuff. You know, or the stuff. If you really want to hear some great Bob Weir, listen to when Pigpen when Pigpen was in the Grateful Dead. And listen to what he played opposite Pigpen. It's like some incredible stuff. Those are some of my favorite shows, you know, with Pigpen. And, and, uh, and of course, the last night of the Grateful Dead at Winterland, that was that was incredible. I was there all three nights, and it was just incredible. Did you ever get to play bass with Phil Lush? No, he won't. He won't. In fact, when I, when I was at his club, I want to. I want to, and he respects me as a player. And he's going... I, a Terrapin station opened and he, he was shy, shaking everybody's hand. That was his thing. So he walks down the line and he goes, uh, he goes, wait a minute, Tony? I said, yeah. He says, why did you just come ask me? Could you come in? I said, it's cool. I can afford $5. It's cool. And uh, I didn't really want to ask a favor. Maybe I'll ask it for another show, but I didn't need a show. I didn't need a favor. I just wanted to be like everybody else and go in the show. And he goes, you know, then he shakes everybody's hand. He goes inside. 
gets one of his kids to come out and get me. He says, these kids, they, they come out, where's Tony Saunders? And these girls are all going, I'm with him. And I'm going, no, you're not. You kicked me. <laughs> you didn't want to talk to me. You know what I mean? So, so when I got in there, he goes, Tony, why are you here? You're, you're a jazz guy. Why, why, why are you here? I said, I love the way you play. And he goes, for real? I said, yeah, I do. And that was the first interaction that we had about that. I'm still working on him to get to do it in public. Uh, I'm still working on him because I, I've done it with Jack. He's the last one, you know, while he's alive, I want to get to uh, that I haven't played with from the Grateful Dead. I played with everybody else except Pigpen and and him. And, and you know, that would be awesome to me. That would be like the uh, – it would, it would close my door on that one. But I play with everybody else. So as I said, the next thing we're going to listen to is, uh, is Expressway to Your Heart, which uh, is, one of the, to me, one of the most fun, funky songs you guys played in the 1970s. I, I love the bass line on this tune. I, just, I love that this right? It's, it's such a fun, playful tune. I got to think as a 17 or 18-year-old kid, you had to love playing that song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like, it was like that taught me more music. You know what I mean? Because I knew the R&B stuff. You know, I knew about that because, you know, I grew up listening to it. But now I'm meeting music that crossed over. You know what I'm saying? Music that crossed over. Bigger genre. So when we play that song now in Keystone Revisited, people hum the bass line just like you did. And when I add something extra, they go, we heard that part that you added to, to Expressway because it just goes boom, boom. And then it segues into your dad's part. You know, your dad would come in with the keys heavy right after that part. Yeah. And like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a, 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 maybe we should just listen to, uh, to a quick bit of that, Dan. We'll talk about it on the other side. Okay. Yeah. It's a great song. so much fun uh, obviously I've heard a a handful of people do it but the only only reason I ever knew about that song was because of like you know 1974 through 76 Garcia um, iterations whether it was you know with your dad or whether it was Legion of Mary you know those were the ones that uh, that, you know express and they they played a song a song called Motherload if you could uh, no it's a song called When I Die it was by Motherload this this group from Canada that my dad and Jerry liked it was like pretty awesome Um, and you know it was for me, like, like I have no prejudice whatsoever towards anybody. I am glad that I've been turned on to all this music. You know what I mean? Not that many pe- people would think I'm lying if I said I've been around the Jefferson Airplane, the Grateful Dead, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know, Sly Stone. You know, they, they think that I'm like a, a guy that's like bragging. But, uh, but, but I'm not. You know, it was a great thing. And I got to play with Butterfield. Butterfield um, bought, at the end of one of my dad's tours, um, he bought me back to Woodstock. I stayed at the uh, barn. And uh, and uh, so while I was there, I got to play with uh, John Sebastian. 
Leon Russell and 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 his wife Mary 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 McCreary, uh, Butterfield. Uh, I stayed upstairs and uh, I got to watch Max Roach play at the Joyous Lake. You know, I mean, it's like jazz legends. You know, it, yeah. And then I got to meet Al Grossman. You know what I mean? And and then uh, these roadies. This one roadie that I worked with when I was twelve years old lived there. He worked for Butterfield. How does Max Roach get together with Park Butterfield and, and John Sebastian? I mean, just Sebastian and Butterfield make sense together, but Max Roach throwing that into the mix. So like- Max Roach was playing his own stuff. We were just watching him. But I learned, he, he taught me, Max Roach showed how the hi-hat could just play a song. And I was going like, wow. He's one of the, the best like uh, jazz trap uh, drummers I've ever seen. Ever. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Ever. You know what I mean? <laughs> Amazing. What can you say? Hey, so let me ask you a, a different question. We talked about a lot of the guys that came before you, but you know, in the Bay Area, there's a lot of bass players that came after you, like um, Les Claypool and Charlie Hunter would be two that would come to mind. I mean, Charlie's sort of being a fusion guy, also and doing a lot of stuff with jazz. Did you like? We we played at the same. We played Charlie Hunter and I played at the same club, the Paradise Lounge, forever. He would be playing upstairs, I would be playing downstairs, or vice versa. And so I saw him develop that whole thing. And my friend played drums with him. Jay Lynn? Yeah, yeah. And it, it was like, you know, Les Claypool was ridiculous, ridiculously. I also, in that same time period, Metallica, Metallica came, um, that bass player, um, Brett, he, hey, all of a sudden he got real good. It was it was really funny because he was in, he the, the guy in Metallica would play in all of these funk bands, right? And then the next thing I know, Brad Russell, I think his name, and then, I can't remember that might not be the right name, but but anyway, the guy he he was the guy in Metallica that played bass. He and he sang, he was in like a bunch of funk groups. And when I found out he was the pretty boy singing Metallica, I was like, whoa, you know, I couldn't believe it. And and, and just so many Was it Cliff Burton? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh but so, like, I, I look at Les Claypool, and I think Les is probably one of the most innovative um, uh, bass players of all time. But I look at a lot of the stuff that you were doing before he got big, and, and I look at a lot of the stuff that, like, you know, when I watch you do bass solos now, and how innovative your bass playing is, and it's like it's not it, like you said you're a huge like devotee of John Kahn, but John Kahn was a very straightforward bass player, and even when he did his solos on like Russian Lullaby and his you know solos on on some other tunes, they were very understated. They never really got super super funky the way that your bass playing is. Do you think someone like Les, you know, took a lot from you? Yeah, yeah. It, it was like, um, so, but but you have to remember, I idolized John Kahn to the to the T. So I could probably play you Russian lullaby like no for no. But I had this other crazy side in me that, you know, I saw Jimi Hendrix play when I was a kid. You know what I'm saying? So I want I want to treat the bass like, you know, I want to I want to treat the bass like a guitar. So that's why you get the funk stuff mixed up but then I want to be melodic and I want to tell stories so you know I want to try to mix it all in you know playing the stuff that I do now with the smooth jazz stuff it's cool but but really I have the most fun playing at Keystone Revisited because we play you know all of these tunes and and I play solo in that band and I can play whatever now because my dad's not telling me what to do (laughs) And, and but it's 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 like you know expressing yourself you know and that's what I learned the most from from all of those guys, from from John Kahn, from Jerry, is that they, if they express themselves. I mean, if you listen to listen to like get a dead song and listen to it through the different periods and listen to what Jerry played. That's what I listen to. 
And some of the some of the stuff, like he plays it different on the different guitars. You know what I mean? Sometimes when he's playing the Travis Bean, listen to that stuff. It's like totally different than anything he's played. Or when he got Tiger, you know what I mean? It's like it's like it's playing. I remember seeing him play those guitars when he first got them, and he was like, you know, he's a bad he's a bad dude. You know what I mean? And and to be surrounded by all of that creativity makes who I am because I'm always reaching for it. You know what I mean? Alfonso Johnson once told me, he said, Tony, everybody has its place. There's there's only there's only going to be so many virtuosos. There's going to be so many really good people. And there's going to be some teachers. There's going to be some innovators. You know, he explained to me and I was like, oh, wow, I never thought that. And then, and then, so I teach now. I have some great students, you know. But I also I love to go out and play. I, I'll never lose that because my dad toured until he until he passed away. You know, um, he was still. I couldn't. In fact, the reason why I didn't play with him, I started out with him in the rainforest band. But it was like he was like touring all the time. He never went home. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, dude, I got to go home. And then and then, and then so you know, I, I play with other people and stuff. But that that was uh you know what what a conniption of musicians that I've I've been able to come across. So what other contemporary guys do you do you love? I mean like the basic expression and funk like that. There's like Victor Wooten, someone that you love on on bass these days, or who, you know, who else is out there? Who doesn't? Yeah, of course. Yeah, but who's 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 just crushing it right now? Uh, Victor Wooten, Stanley Clark Distiller, Ralph Armstrong on Upright. He plays Upright on Upright. Uh, you know, I used to love uh, the guy that played in, uh, not the Wolf Brothers, uh, the guy that passed away. Um, that was in Bob's group before. Yeah, Wasserman. Bob Wasserman. Yeah, I used to love him. I used to love him. I loved him and everything he did. He was like awesome. So my thing is, is so I got that stand-up stuff in me, but I, I'm going a, I'm to a play it on electric bass and make you feel it like my electric bass. You know what I'm saying? So I could play the cute melodies, but I also could tear up the bass. You know what I mean? So don't think that I don't, I'll play Purple Haze at a jazz gig and they won't even know what I'm doing, except for my deadheads who know that, hey, Tony's playing Purple Haze here with his jazz stuff. Nobody knows that he's playing Hendrix stuff. You know what I mean? So so I, I mix all of that stuff in. I, I really like, I love, I listen to Les Claypool um, so that I could get charged up. You know, I listen to, uh, Brian Bromberg, who plays electric bass and upright, and he plays guitar and drums. But I listen to him because he's like so good, and his rhythm thing is like it's like he plays paradiddles on the bass, you know. So I so I'm getting into that, learning how he does that, you know. And I like anybody who's good. I I have a a guy that I'm working with right now, and he plays bass a little bit like Lesh. I'm going, that's kind of luscious. And he's going, I thought I sounded more like Jack Cassidy. And I said, no, nah, that ain't Jack Cassidy. That's, that's Lesh. Um, but I, the uh, one thing I want to tell you about Jack, Jack hadn't seen me play in about 10 years. And he saw me play in a NAMM show and a tear came down his face. Because he says, I can't believe how good you've gotten, Tony. And he walks over to the, the Gibson booth and gives me one of his signature bases. You know what I mean? And, I, and then I'm crying. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And I'm going, thank you so much, man. It's like, wow, man. Hey, Tony, I, I love all this music talking. We're going to get back to it in a minute. But given that this is the Deadhead Cannabis Show, 
I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to please relate to us the story about how after your father died and you were cleaning up the house and you moved a piece of furniture and there behind it on the floor, you found Jerry Garcia's pipe. <laughs> so I didn't find it. My brother did. My brother did. Uh, but so when Jerry came there uh, after he got out the hospital, he stayed in my brother's room. And, uh, you know, they played every day for about two weeks because really he really couldn't play. And I, I was going like, what happened? And he just said his brain got, he said, my brains got scrambled. And then I just, I forgot. And I was going like, wow. And so, yeah, he found his little whatever, whatever crack pipe or whatever you want to call it. Also, what was really funny is that whole week while he was at my dad's house, a black cat sat on his hood. For real. A black cat sat on the hood of his car. It's like, you know, come on. For real. And my dad was was very gentle with him. You know, I know that my dad didn't know that that pipe was there or he would have taken it, you know. And plus two, I was working with him and John Kahn when he went on the, uh, to work the last gigs that he did. I was working on a movie score and they were kind of, they would go in the back. I could say that, that they never did any anything with me other than pot. Never did anything with me. And I, so they would come out the back, him and John Kahn would say, Tony, so I'm writing this score for this movie. The movie was called Farmer and Chase. And, and they were going to submit a couple songs to it. And I was doing the music. So I would, I'm working at John's house. They go in the back, they come out, they come out, listen, let's, let me hear what you did. And I said, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. And then they go back in the back. But John Conan, and as you know, Jerry, were like inseparable with everything that they did, unfortunately. Yep. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. They're troublemakers. So when Jerry came out of his coma, it was basically your father and, uh, and Carlos Santana that really taught him how to play music again, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I sat down there with him in, in my dad's studio and watched him play. And it was like, you'd be humbled if you were there that day. You know what I mean? You'd be humbled. Was your father really patient with him at that time? Because all the stories I've read is that... My dad was always patient. And Jerry gave him a... There's something on the internet when Jerry talks about that he'd always make time to play with my dad. When we did the Twilight Zone episode, Phil Lesh gave me the job to play bass because he only played on the opening theme and the closing theme. But he didn't have the time to come there every day to do the, do the TV show. And we did it for two and a half years. Jerry would come on Thursday... Me, Bob, and Brent were there every day with my dad. Um, and uh, that's how I got into sushi, because Bob would order sushi <laughs> every day, and I, and I started liking it after a while. Hey, what was Brent like? Brent was super nice. We were like kids. You know, we were like two kids, because we would like be joking around and stuff. We would be like the kids, like messing with stuff in, on Front Street, you know what I mean, until my dad needed us. And then, and then he'd go, hey, hey, where are you? But, you know, and, and, and there's a couple of Hate Street things where Brent's playing my dad's B3 and my dad's playing synthesizers. And if he didn't like him a lot, he wouldn't be playing a B3. You know what I mean? So sure. Brent, you know, Brent was a nice, super nice guy. Great keyboard guy, too. And I love the way he sang, too. He was cool. He was cool. But me and him were like, we're like friends. We, 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 we were like, we go, hey, 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 did you see that girl like in the third row last night, Tony? Well, here she is. <laughs> so, uh, so well, he was my he was the keyboard player when I started seeing the dead in '82. So I missed all the earlier guys, right? 
uh, you know, that Brent and I loved Brent, but it was like, boy, I wish I could have seen Pigpen. But then 10 years later, my younger brothers are going and they're hearing Vince and they're, oh, we wish we could have heard Brent. Right. So everybody always wishes. And I loved Vince Welnick too. I thought he did a great job. He did do a great, I got to play with Vince too. I was in one of his solo bands and then he passed away. Like right before we're getting ready to do this major tour. So is that missing man formation? Yeah. 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 I, I would go up to his house and we play for hours, hours, man. And he was cool, man. He could play. Um, and so that was around the time when Bruce Hornsby would be around too. And Bruce Hornsby would play a lot too, uh, with, with, the, with them. And Vince, Vince was, was that structured where he played like he could do like the Hornsby stuff, you know? And he had songs that were kind of like that Hornsby vibe, like the, like the, um, like you know, he had songs like that. It was I. I always like to fit in with the different things, you know, and uh, you know, and luckily I did. Let, let me ask you a strange question, and that: How did your dad feel about Melvin Seals? Were they were they friends? Were they uh, you know? I knew I knew Melvin Seals from when I was sixteen. So I used to play I used to play uh, uh, sessions for Melvin Seals when he had a four track, right? And, be, and so we were always going on, I was always going on the road. And then Melvin would go like, oh, wow, I wish I could do do that and go on the road. Then he, he got the gig with Elvin Bishop. Um, and then he got to play with Dolly Parton, play with a bunch of people. And Melvin was a good gospel guy. Still is a good gospel guy. Yeah. He's still one of my favorite B3 players. And it's like him with the B3 and a Leslie, it's no better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, but he's more of a gospel guy. He's not really a jazz guy. He's not really a jazz player. He's not really a jazz guy. He can't. He can't. He's a church organist. He's a church organist. And if you listen to him play, and I love him dearly. Don't get me wrong, but he's it's it's different when you got when you got a gospel guy playing this music. You know they're gonna stay pretty conformed to parts. And sometimes um, when we play someplace that JGB has just played, they'll say, "Hey, you guys don't play the same show every night." Because sometimes we see Melvin play the same show. Since I, I said, I, you know what? I haven't seen Melvin since because we're working all the time. I haven't seen him in a long time. But you know, I know he's a he's a great player. He's a great producer. He he had a, a gospel record company called uh, Secret Records, and I would play on all the records. You know, it was and it was great. I remember when he met his wife. You know, and and he would always want to be wild. So when they uh, when they had a new conjunction. Convection of Jerry Garcia. Um, after Reconstruction, they did uh, Maria Mulder because of her with John Kahn. She suggested Melvin because they wanted to go a different direction. And there, there was no animosity between your father uh, when, when Jerry decided to go that direction instead of working with Merle still? I mean, he was still. It was funny. They would be rehearsing on the other side of Front Street and we'd be on the other side doing a Twilight Zone. I'm sure that my dad wanted to still be playing with Jerry because he loved him that much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He loved him that much. But, you know, my dad rolled with the punches. And and because uh, at first they used uh, the guy from the Stones. What was his name? Uh, Nicky Hopkins. Nicky Hopkins. First they used Nicky Hopkins. And my dad was kind of bummed about that. But then, you know, when, when Jerry came and played with him, away he knew that Jerry still wanted to play with them you know what I'm saying so he they did enough other stuff that he was cool and I was really proud of my dad when he had his first sellout I was with him it was in Rochester New York 
and you know all the deadheads came out to see him, and it was great. It was great. It was great, and uh, you know it was great. So I'm sure that the animosity wore off. You know what I mean? Uh, my dad and Melvin did a tour. They did. You know what okay. I mean? That's, uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's so, so, so it wasn't never any talked about animosity. Knowing both people, my dad was a jazz guy. Melvin's a gospel guy. Melvin, I played more church stuff with Melvin. Uh, I played on tons of records for him for church people. Melvin got that down. My, and he can do stuff that my dad couldn't do in gospel. My dad has jazz stuff down and could do jazz stuff that Melvin couldn't do. But they're both great players. You know, they're both great players. And Melvin, for him to keep this uh, this thing going on for as long as he had, JGB, it's incredible. It's incredible. You know what I mean? It's incredible. But he sticks to the book. I know that because sometimes if he comes and sit, the last time I played with him at Great American Music Hall, he says, he was telling me a song that we were playing with Norton Buffalo. And, and he's going like, this goes like this, Tony, like this, because he wanted me to do this notes. You know what I'm saying? So, so I, hey, and I, and I, and I'm, I'm humble because I always, I don't want to make mistakes. So I listen to him and I play the correct notes, you know? So, so, so I have utmost respect for Melvin. I wish that we would sometime get together and play, but he doesn't want to do that because he has certain specifications. In fact, the bass player, uh, that plays in, uh, in, uh, JGB, uh, what's his name? I'm not sure he's got now. Okay, um, he's had the same guy forever. Um, but anyway, that guy, um, when I would go sit in on his gigs, he would go, oh, Tony, that's cool. Do something different. You know what I mean? And uh, and uh, and so we we would hang out, and, and I'd go sit in on his arm. We played with this girl named – we both played with this girl uh, named Kathy Cotton, and it needed to be me or him. And, he, and he, then he would come hang out with me, you know, which was really cool. Hey, let me ask you a quick question about this, Tony. Do you keep up with any of the new jam bands, Fish, Widespread Panic, Goose, any of those guys? I like Widespread Panic a lot. I love Trey Anastasia a lot. I, that's my favorite group, right? Trey is my favorite group. And I'm going to get to play with uh, the big guy. Dave Schools? No, I played with him before because um, he plays with, uh, with, with Bobby. He plays with Bobby a lot. When they used to do Weirs here, I used to be all the time there and they let me do my own weirds here and and schools doesn't like me around that much but that's another story but i like him, yeah. I like him. no no he doesn't have any animosity towards me for real i i'm just making that up for real we're, we're, we're the best of friends I'm, I'm that was a tony fib I'm, I'm trying to think of uh the guy um who's the guy who plays for monica that sings john popper. Rock, popper so i'm getting ready to do some stuff with him in tribute to my dad and trey and, uh, you know, that's going to be pretty awesome. And um, we're going to release. So you mentioned this earlier, Robert, about that Imagine track from the Lion Share. So what I've done is we've taken that, we've broken it down, and we've added it so that uh, we've added it, we've made a new, a new song out of it where they – so – we took out all the melodies, but we left all their solos. You know what I mean? So we're going to have a track of Imagine come out with Jerry and my dad, Bill Vitt and John Kahn, with Tony Saunders playing the melody, and uh, 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 Scott Guberman for, and, uh, 
and uh, Danny Eisenberg playing additional organ, additional keyboards. Um, the lead singer of David Ruffin Jr. singing. And, and we didn't get in their way when they did their stuff. We let them do their stuff, and it all comes naturally, except for I play the melody. You know, so, of course, I'm in tears the first time. And, and you'll have this, um, Dan, I have your email, so I'll send it to you. Just don't play it for anybody because it won't be out for another year, probably. Um, just don't play it. Yeah, yeah, sit on it. Listen to it, though. I'm sure you'll, yeah, you'll enjoy it. And if you have anything to say that can make it better, Tell me, because I'll listen. Oh, That's for sure. Yeah. I, I don't think Larry and I are qualified to do that, Tony. <laughs> Dan might be. Yeah. Uh, so, but it's it's a it's a great track. So, so hey, you were saying that your that your dad was a jazz guy, Melvin was a gospel guy. I've listened to your music, and I think you're kind of everything. You got a lot of funk in you. I was gonna I was gonna play one more track uh, before we get to some of your um, uh, individual stuff you've done later. But on the funk side, uh, we have a quick little bit of you playing Boogie on Reggae Woman, obviously a classic Stevie Wonder tune. And so if you don't mind, let's, uh, let's play a little bit of that. This is again. Uh, let's boogie. Yeah, this is back from, uh, back from, uh, let's see if I remember the date on this one specifically. But uh, July 22nd, 1974. Thank you. Wow. Appreciate that. One of, one of your earliest gigs with, uh, with Jerry and Merle. So let's, let's cue that up. classic songs that so many people have covered obviously fish has made it really popular and introduced it to a whole new uh a whole new wave of of youngsters out there fish does it really yeah. good I, I like i like fish a lot i also like what's the group from colorado that plays like the grateful dead stuff like really good and it's a lot it's a big the string cheese incident string trees incidents is one but there's another group yeah. they're like an orchestra a dark star orchestra Oh yeah, Motet. Yeah, Dark Star Orchestra. I like I like them a lot. I like them a lot because they 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 make me like relive the days I took acid. You know, I, I sit there and go like, wow. I remember I took acid that day and went to Stinson Beach and watched the water melt down the side of the mountain. You know, it was it was really pretty pretty awesome. Yeah. I used to live right next door to Rob Eaton from uh, from Dark Star. Their, their bass player, Rob Eaton, was uh, lived right by, right down the street from me in Colorado for years. Yeah, those guys are great guys, man. They're, they're, they're what nice they do people. is such a unique thing. Oh my God, it's so good. You know, it's so good. You know, and, and I'm glad that the uh, Bobby sometimes plays with them and sits in. And I I don't know if Phil's played with them, but I know Bobby has. I've seen videos of Bobby playing with them, and and they're they're just like really good. String cheese incident is like impeccable so i'm doing something right now with a girl that plays cello and 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 a girl that plays upright and violin that's going to be on my next album that i'm working on right now and um um it's going to be it's going to have cello acoustic bass violin and let me play an electric and it's going to be just a great, great what label are you on now i'm on baja tsr records cool 
And that's, those guys are treating you well. They're letting, giving you all the freedom you want to just create. Yeah, yeah. They want me to make hit singles, though. I'm going, hit singles. I'm going like, you know, but but wait a minute. I say, so. Who do you think I am, my father? Um, they're, no, no, I got I got Merlin, you hit singles. I got, I got, <laughs> I've had like three or four hits. I've had three or four smashes. I'm cool with that. But you know what, though? To, to just say that, to say, hey, I need you to write me a hit. Go ahead. But they're, when they signed me, I was number two to their guy who's number one for a whole year. And so they signed me because of that. So don't forget that. You know what I'm saying? And you don't, we don't pick the song that's going to be a hit. I said, my most played song, we didn't predict that. We didn't pick that as a single. So it's like, anyway, but that's a whole nother hour. <laughs> so how do, how do people find you uh, and where your upcoming tours are? Do you want to plug a, a website? Do you want to plug anything else that you're doing right now? TonySaunders.com. There we go. And uh, and 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 please come to TonySaunders.com, and and you could you could get a hold of me. My phone number is even on there. If you want to talk to me, you can call me because I need to gig. You know what I'm saying? So you know I'm not that elusive or not that famous. Where I have I have an agent. I have a couple of agents, but you know. If you want to talk to me, some people, this guy called me up from New York. He wanted to hire me to work on this movie, right? And he goes, he called me like at nine in the morning, right? He says, hello, I want to speak to Tony Saunders. I said, this is Tony Saunders. He says, no, the one that plays bass. He said, no, this is him. He says, why are you answering your phone? Why don't you have somebody <laughs> do that? I said, well, right. the budget isn't in the budget yet. When I do get that, then you won't be able to talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> I've had it the other way, Tony. I've had it the other way where I had Bernie Worrell call me one time, and I got on the phone, and I was like, you know, before Bernie passed, and he's like, it's Bernie Worrell. I'm like, bullshit. Who is this really? It's like, no, man, it's Bernie Worrell. I want to know if you want to manage a tour of mine coming up. And I had the same thing with Stephen Perkins uh, from Jane's Addiction, where in both times, I'm like, there's, you know, no, no, seriously, who is this really? Like, which one of my friends is fucking with me right now? But it's right, so funny. Right. So, like, you know, for, for you, it's the other side. You're like, no, this is really me. For me, it's always like, no, this can't be you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so Mick Fleetwood called me up one time. He says, hey, Mike, this is Mick. I'm going like, Mick who? He says, Mick Fleetwood. I'm going like, no way. I said, hold on for a second. And I, I put the phone down. I was like, fucking hey, Mick Fleetwood. You know what I'm saying? I can't believe it. And he wants, he wants to write a song with me. And then I, I, I played with him a couple times over in Maui. You know, it's like, wow. You know, when these people call you, you know, you know, like when when I got to play with David Crosby, you know, that was incredible. I didn't even know a song that Crosby, Stills, and Nash did. I didn't know a song. He's going like, don't you know, don't you know, uh, was it wooden, don't you know wooden ships? Right. Come on, teach your children had Garcia in the beginning of it. You know, Garcia does the lead, the lead pedal steel on that. I learned all of that, but I didn't know who he was. And then he was just... He wouldn't like me to play with other people after I started playing with him. And one time, Stephen Stills asked me to play with him, and 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 David Crosby was like, "No, I discovered Tony. <laughs> <laughs> He's mine." And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 you know, some of my greatest music. I was with Tim Crosby when he got busted in Texas. You know, I was I was playing bass with him. You know, I was the unidentified black man who <laughs> uh, who the police say stopped him from going in the dressing room. But I was just leaning up against the dressing room door because I didn't go in there to do whatever they did. Um, um, I didn't go in there, right? And so I'm leaning against the door, half asleep. Cop hits me in my chest, and I punched him back because I didn't know I was asleep. And so I was asleep, and I, I hit him. If you get hit here in the chest and you're asleep, you're going to punch back. So in the next day in the paper, 
um, it was like, I was the, it said an unidentified black man tried to stop a police officer from going in to arrest David. And, um, you know, uh, Crosby goes, Tony, you clocked him. His jaw was tacked up. <laughs> and so I'm not proud of that because I have all the respect in the world for the police, you know, but it was just like, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. But David Crosby, I learned how to do a lot of music from him. And I learned how to fit in. The, the drummer that played with us at that time was Jay David. And he was the drummer in, in the Dr. Hook. And he taught me how to play all the different. He taught me how to mix in what I do good with what goes well with the track. You know what I mean? He would have signals. If I was playing too funky for him, he'd hold up the he'd hold up the white side of the single. I need you to be a little whiter. <laughs> how can you how can you be too funky for Dr. Hook? You know, I always think of Dr. Hook as being one of the funkiest guys out there. If we were doing a session, if we were doing a session playing on somebody's stuff. I think I played on Juice Newton stuff. He was going like, you know, need to lighten that up a little bit. Juice Newton, Queen of Hearts, huh? Yeah, Queen of Hearts. I played on one of her records. And uh would I would I really my one of my fun periods away from from uh, uh my dead type music although it was really free was when i played with buffy saint marie and we played like all these indian reservations and uh on one day we played at the end of the longest walk in one day i met marlon brando muhammad ali stevie wonder ralph abernathy dick gregory richie havens floyd westerman i spent like an hour and a half marlon brando's only like five four five five you know i'm going like he said, "If you ever look at him on 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 film, he's always off. He's never he's never show how tall he is." He said he's always off, and but it was amazing to talk to Marlon Brando for an hour. You know, that was that was that was Richie Havens is like seven feet tall. It's a total opposite. Yeah, Richie Havens, super tall. Yeah. And 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 the other guy. Um, if you do you did you ever um, watch Barney Miller? Of course. So my dad, my dad's best friend was Walter Owens. Max Gale. That's one of my favorite bass lines as well, man. Talking about a great intro with bass lines. Yeah. Yep, I know that one, definitely. My first bass line I ever played, my first bass line that I learned besides something John Kahn played was was a staple singer. That was my first thing. I thought I was so cool. I would carry my bass to parties and go, hey, listen to me. Tony, you are so cool. <laughs> I'm hanging. Hey, hey, man, my life, my life has not yeah. been boring. You know what I mean? I thank God. For I sure. thank God for having friends like you guys. You know, I never knew prejudice or anything like that because because I grew up in California, so I didn't know that they say you, you're most supposed to marry somebody with blonde hair and blue eyes, which I did the first time, and and then they say they're supposed to marry somebody dark and handsome. Well, I say, well, I'm dark. You know what I mean? <laughs> So, uh, one out of two ain't bad. One out of two ain't bad. And so I didn't know till I was in Oklahoma one day that there was prejudice. And, you know, it was just, you know, I didn't know about that. You know what I'm saying? But, I, I, hey, you know what I'm saying? We're born out of love. We're born out of making love. So, you know, so I'm into the love thing. And, um, you know, I'm always trying to, I say that at my gigs. And, and, I, and I, I just want to share love. My dad just shared love with me. I mean, he could have not taking me under his wing and, uh, you know, taught me music and, and just let me be out there, you know, but he didn't, you know what I'm saying? But I, but because of that, I mean, I've got to play with Dave Liebman, Pee Wee Ellis, 
You know what I mean? You know, I've got to play with some of these guys that are super good. You know, and 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 just um, I grew uh, so my cousin played drums with Stanley Turntine, Sonny Rollins. These guys would be at my aunt's house on Sunday eating chicken when they played at the Keystone. You know, so you know it's like it's like wow. Vince Garalji, I love Vince Garalji because he was on Fantasy. The Peanuts stuff. That's that's what I had. That's what I had. So Peanuts was made at Fantasy Studio. So I had I had all of the cartoons of Charlie Brown, Vince Garalji. I was there for when he recorded live at Grace Cathedral. Tony, I had one of the best nights of my life one night up in Humboldt County, uh, high as can be on on Molly, listening to Vince Garalji <laughs> just like with the whole house lit up. And just realized just how insanely amazing that music is. And I mean, obviously, like in substances, I'm sure helped, but just the music by itself. I only thought about it as like you know, kids' cartoon music. Yeah. And here I'm in my late 20s, and all of a sudden hearing a whole new light and taking on an absolutely new appreciation for just how brilliant that guy was. So it's yeah. Hey, he was brilliant, man. He was brilliant. That stuff fit into the cartoons, and and it, it was uh, it was made for everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was it was everybody. Everybody liked that music. You know, just like everybody likes the Grateful Dead. You go to a Grateful Dead show, you see so many generations. You know what I mean? And even the kids. You know why I like it, Tony? Because I can go to the Grateful Dead show still, and I'm not even close to being the oldest guy in the joint. (laughs) Yeah, I can go there too. And it's like that that thing. I I love that group and and the incarnations that that are happening now. It's like, you know, you see so many people. And I like it that, that the young kids who are, you know, growing up with ear pods on, you know, they're starting to know like shows and they're like going off. Oh, yeah. I like 68. My kids listen to all of it. Yeah. My, kid's, my kid's seven years old. My son's seven. And he'll, he'll tell me which well, Shakedown Street's his favorite or which Fire in the Mountains is favorite. Uh, so it, it's still happening, man. This isn't going anywhere. As your father said yeah. to you, I've said to my kid, you'll be listening to this for the rest of your life. You don't know that yet, but you'll be listening to this for the rest of your life. So yeah. it's, uh, we're, we're, we're raising them well, man. Tony, like, I don't want to cut this short. You've been so generous with your time, but we've had you for, for over an hour now. And, you know, you're welcome to come back on the show literally any time, even if we tell the same story. Like, have me back. So. Have me back. I'll send you – I'm going to send you this track of Imagine. Listen to that. And then, you know, um, you know, further down the line, have me back on. And uh, maybe I'll get some yes, of sir. my Keystone guys with me. I'm Scott Guberman. So, so my thing is what I want to say to all the people that love The Grateful Dead, Go out there and do your own music also. Yes, copy them because they played some great music. But if you want to know what was in Jerry's heart, he would want you to play what's in your heart because that's what he did every night. And if he made a mistake, so be it. You know what I mean? So but, so what? It's just music. You make a you make a mistake. That's what it's there for. So I would encourage people that want to play like the thing that he played on Tiger in 1971 at at the Fillmore East at the Madison Square Garden at the Fillmore East or Madison Square Garden you know Capitol yeah Capitol Theater you know what I'm saying so hey express yourself is what he would say he would go like why are you copying me I was having a bad night that night (laughs) (laughs) you do a great imitation by the way I love that hey well if you can imagine you know I sat there next to him and I'm in awe of this whole situation going on. I'm like going like, wow, this is a trip, man. These same people are here like every night, you know, to watch these people play. I'm like going, wow, this is this is like crazy. Some of the some of the same people, I hang out with some of the same people. 
that I hung out with when I was 14. That's amazing. That's, like, that's wow. incredible. These are great wow. stories. But hey, I think you guys have a great show. And, and you know, I'm all for, I'm glad that cannabis has gotten to such an elite level where now you don't have to guess if you're getting good weed. You know you're getting good weed. Amen. <laughs> I know that. You know, I, I know that. I know that now it's really good. You know, I'm cool. Like I say, I'm a, I'm a frequent flyer. So I'll eat something to get on that plane so that I could sleep the whole way. And, and wake up in another place where I got to play music. I'm pretty sure at any time you can always call uh, Big Steve for some Grizzly Peak joints or call Mickey Hart to get some little dog walkers. But uh, yeah, I'm pre- pretty sure you're well taken care of just by the Grateful Dead community for all the weed you could ever smoke. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I couldn't want for anything. They, the, this musical appreciation for my dad's music, you know, it's like it's, like, it's so overwhelming. Uh, my last story I'm going to leave you with. So we're playing. We're playing, we're playing a gig in Connecticut. This lady walks up to me with a bra that my dad has signed. And she's going like, can you sign the bra too? I'm going like, my dad already signed it. I'm cool. And besides, that was, looking at that bra, that's from a long time ago. So, you know, just uh, just uh, either wear it as a COVID mask or, <laughs> you know, you don't need my signature. My signature on there. My dad's already signed it. You're cool. I signed one of my pictures and give it to you, but I can't sign the bra because my dad already signed it. Okay. What else? You What else? You guys did? I'm cool with. I'm cool with. I th- I'm glad you came to the show. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh-huh. But but no thanks. <laughs> you know. But I've gotten so many so many great things from people giving me stuff that my dad has signed, and it always brings a tear to my eye when I see something he wrote to people a long time ago. It's cool. It's very Wonderful. cool. This 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 family. It's like the Grateful Dead took care of their entire family. You know what I mean? So it's great to share with it because it's in me. People ask me, how could I be a twirler and play jazz? (laughs) Because it's in me. It's in me. I went to Grateful Dead shows. I I grew up listening to this music. You know how to twirl. I I love it. That's great. I know how to twirl. Yeah, yeah. But I thank you guys for having me on. and, And it's pretty awesome. You guys are really Thank cool. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you so much. So, so, so before we uh, before we finish up uh, today, before we say our goodbyes, we are going to end with some of uh, Tony's more recent music as he uh, plays "Rock Steady," which I believe was a Michael Jackson cover. Uh, at the end of the show, and from you know my side of it, Tony, thank you so much for joining us today, and much love to you and your entire family, to the whole Sonic family, for just giving me endless, endless hours of great music to listen to for the last 35 or 40 years of my life. And I can't even tell you how appreciative I am for what you've contributed to, to, to my life and my friends' lives in just terms of just pumping out amazing, amazing music for all these years. So keep doing what you're doing, man. I will. I'm a huge fan, and I'm so thrilled to have you on today. So thanks for the stories and for your time. Okay. And so Rob Hunt signing off uh, from, from Southern California. And, and Tony, on my way out, I'll tell you that, you know, I was a young deadhead in 82, 83, just beginning to understand them. And somebody put on the live at Keystone for me. And that, that, that opened doors that I couldn't even believe, you know, to hear the music that Garcia was making when he wasn't with the Grateful Dead and how wonderful that all was. And, you know, this is music that impacts us years later that our kids listen to, um, you know, so it's a wonderful thing that they've accomplished. It's great you're carrying on the tradition. And uh, really, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Uh, Tony Saunders, everyone, uh, please check out his music. Please check out anything he does. It's well worth it. And we will look forward to having you back on the show uh, very soon. So good luck with all of your work. 
uh, to our listener. Hey, thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Thank you. Uh, and to all of our listeners, as always, thanks for joining us. We will have more great stuff for you in the weeks to come. Uh, have a great week. Take care of yourself and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.